Welcome to the LifePoint Palm Bay Sermon Podcast. We encourage you to make copies of this message, but please don't charge for those copies. If you'd like to know more about LifePoint Palm Bay, please visit LifePointPB.com. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. We've been in a series now for quite a while on uh, custom-made calling. As we've been walking through the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters laying out for us really the riches that we have in Christ Jesus, what is ours, the inheritance that is ours, and this inheritance, you know, how inheritance usually work, you usually get them when someone dies. Uh, well, Jesus died and rose again, and the inheritance is now ours. And so... We, um, we've been looking at that the first three chapters. We began a couple of weeks ago in the first part of chapter four, which kind of talks about this spirit, uh, this unity that the spirit creates. We don't create it. The spirit creates unity. We maintain it. We work. We endeavor to maintain that unity. Um, and so it talks about this very precious thing that you have in the body, in the family of Christ. We get to verse seven, and seven through 16 is, I believe, a critical part of the book of Ephesians. As a matter of fact, it is my opinion that the, the North American church, by and large, today does not know why it's here or what its purpose is. Um, we do church, but have little idea of what it means to be the church. And so, Paul, as he gets to this, as a matter of fact, some theologians have called this the great constitutional statement of the New Testament when we get to this part of Ephesians. And the Apostle Paul is laying out for us some critical vital things, all right? Um, I'm going to read through this morning verses 7 through 16 so that you kind of get the context of it. We are not near about going to cover all of that this morning. It will take some time to do. As a matter of fact, the Lord's kind of been stirring in my heart and what I believe is going to happen over the next several weeks, just so you know, today I'm going to give you a little introduction to this section of Scripture. Next week, we're going to talk about spiritual gifts because that's part of, that's in this passage where he says that the Lord gave gifts. And so we're going to talk about these different lists of gifts that we see in Scripture, at least four different places that I know of where there's a list of gifts that are, that are given. And a, kind of a, kind of a, just a, uh, Tom Colopy likes to say a 10,000 foot view. That's kind of what we're going to give you um, next week. I'm not going to go into great detail on all these. We won't have time uh, unless you want to be here all afternoon. Um, but we will kind of give you a, a little bit overview. And what I'm going to really encourage is that you would take time in one of our equipping classes to be able to dig deeper. If you've never taken a spiritual gifts test, if you've never really studied more into this, one of the most powerful things you'll ever do as a believer is to begin to understand how God made you and the giftings that he gave you. And by the way, we're going to see it this morning. Every one of you has at least one gift. I think you have multiple gifts that God gave you. These are not, talent, these are not natural human talents, although God can, by his spirit, take and empower natural human talents and take them to a whole other level. But I don't think that's what, in fact, I know that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about spiritual gifts that he gave, things that Jesus gave by his spirit to you and me upon our conversion because he wants us to be able to utilize them in his kingdom, in his body, to build up the kingdom, to advance the kingdom, and for also for us to know our purpose and our place. And I talk to so many people who look at me and they don't know their purpose. They're, they don't know why they're here. 
other than, well, I go to work or I, you know, I raise a family or I do, that's all great. But God's purpose for you is bigger than just where you work or what house you live in or where you reside or raising a, fam raising a family can be a part of God's work for you, but it's not the whole of it. He's got more for you. He made you for more. He made your children for more. So as you discover it, you help them discover. How did God make them? I look at my three kids, all of them made so uniquely different. And Lori and I are constantly crying out, God, help us hear from you to help guide them in the way that you made them. Not the way I want them to go, but the way that you made them. So we'll get into that a little bit next week and talk about it again, just to kind of a, a, an overview of that. And then in the month of July, we're gonna take, I believe that this is how God's leading, we're gonna take a little break from Ephesians for the month of July and just have some individual standalone messages and things that happen in July. And here's the reason, because we have now reached that time of the year where everybody and his brother is going somewhere, okay? It, there's a lot of, even today, a lot of travel that's going on. Next week, there's a lot of travel in the month of July, especially. I believe this is so important that as a body, we need to hear it together. We need to understand this together. So we get to August, we'll come back to Ephesians chapter four and pick up and carry on from there. But it's really, really important, in my opinion, and I don't think it's just my opinion, but I share it as that, that as a church, we understand what the Lord is saying to us in Ephesians chapter four. The, again, the North American church, by and large, in my opinion, has missed the practical application of Ephesians chapter 4. And because of that, there's some great consequences. Look at it with me, all right? Uh, rather than tell you what the consequences, let's just read it so you can see it for yourself. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning there in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Who all got grace? Each one. Grace, charis, um, there is grace that God gives, the, the saving grace that we get. There's also grace, charis is also used often when it talks about gifts. All right, each one was given grace. Each one has been given gifts. This isn't just for the pastor. It's not just for your leadership team. It's not just for missionaries. It's not just for a select few. Each one has received grace. Saving grace, but even more than that. All right, he goes on. Each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. We'll look at that next week, the gifts that he gave to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fulfill all things. Excuse me, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, this is the portion that I'm gonna wait until August and we begin to dive into, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I want you to look what he says here. That if 
this thing is operating the way God intended it to operate, he says, we're going to attain the unity of the faith and of knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. In other words, we're going to grow up. Not just men, women too. Everybody's going to grow up. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Full of Christ. The measure of the stature looking like Christ, being transformed into this image of Christ. He says, this is the way I designed this to happen. I designed it to happen through the church, my church, my body, and I've got a system that I want to use. And here's the problem. Those five things that we just read where he says, that, you know, I get, there's the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers. In most of our North American churches, we at best have two, sometimes three of those five which means we don't grow up to be fully mature. We don't function in a fully mature way, the way he designed. Because we've only done part, we've only engaged, we've only seen part of what he gave activated. And mo most of the time in the local church. So he goes on, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, don't miss those two words. I speak the truth, pastor, do you do it in love? Uh, speak the truth in love, we are to grow up. We're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We have, by and large, in North America, we have event-driven, personality-fueled church ministries, by and large. That's what we have. You say, what do you mean by that? I'm looking forward to the next event. Let's go do this. We did this event. And again, I'm not opposed to events. We did kids camp last week. I guess in a sense that's an event. But, but when you take and structure the thing that God designed to be this living organism, this family empowered supernaturally by his spirit, and you boil it down to man-made programs and events, let's do this, let's plan this, let's figure this out. Well, we want to do this event, so we're going to need this, 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 and this. Again, planning's not bad. Events in and of themselves are not bad. But what has happened primarily in the North American church is that has become the driving force. So it really doesn't matter whether the Holy Spirit shows up or not. Because we already got a plan. We already got a system. And we know it works because we've read 10 experts and they say it'll work if we do it this way. And if those 10 are wrong, then we go to a conference and there'll be 10 more or 100 more. Do you realize as your pastor, if I went to every conference I got invited to, and I did all the different things, where I went and heard the, the, the latest expert, I would never be here. I would never actually show up. I could be your pastor, but never be here. We have, in many ways, Americanized Christianity in the church. But we don't realize it. We don't even recognize what we've lost because we've done it. And if it's not events that are driving us, then it's personalities that are driving us. I love pastor so-and-so. I love this one. This is the speaker I like. This is the one that I like. Somebody says, I don't really go to any local body, I, but I've got five pastors. No, you don't. 
You cannot have five pastors. You have one family. You have one local body where God attaches you. Now, does that mean you don't associate with it? No, it doesn't mean that. But it means there's a place. How many of you know my wife and three children? You could pick them out of this room right now, all right? Great, that's most of you. How many don't know them? You couldn't pick them out. There's a few of you. I should make them stand up, but I won't do that to them, all right? Okay. You all, most of you raised your hand. But if I were to ask you personal details about their life and how many of you know that, I bet there'd be a lot of hands that would not go up. They go back down. Why? Because you may know them, you may be acquainted with them in some way, but you don't live with them all the time. You don't do life with them every day. Do you understand when God, God's idea of family, when he talks about the body of Christ, he kind of intended for us to do life together. That we would know people more than just on a cursory sort of way. We'd understand strengths and weaknesses. We'd understand struggles that one had. We'd challenge one another encourage one another, sometimes correct one another in a loving way. We would do what a healthy family should do. Now here's the challenge that we have. For many of us, we haven't necessarily grown up in a healthy family. So we have taken that unhealth, lack of health, dysfunction and brought it into the family of God and thought, well, it works the same way. God says, no, I got something better for you. Than that. This is what we're going to unpack over several weeks as we get into this. What this looks like, what it means, how it functions. Now I want you to go back with me this morning because I'm going to give you a little introduction into this. When Lori and I got married, we were given all kinds of gifts. People were very generous that way. Many of you have experienced the same thing. You got married and people who love you give you gifts and send you on your way. And so we had all kinds of gifts. One of the gifts that we received when we got married was an electric knife. I had never had an electric knife, um, never really seen one operate a lot, um, but we had it. And so we get to our new place of residence. And then, of course, we moved quite a bit our first few years of marriage. And so we would move different things. And a lot of things that we received, we would use. But that electric knife was never one of them. Lori didn't use it. I don't know if she was very familiar with it. I wasn't really familiar with it. And so it had a nice spot. It never came out of the box. And it sat up high in the pantry. Lori couldn't even reach it. It was way up there. And if she wanted it, she'd have to ask. Um, and it was up there for a long, long time. And then one day, years into our marriage... You know, I'd always been cutting up, in particular cutting up meats, but all kinds of things, just with a regular, trying to find a knife sharp enough and do it all. And somebody said, you ever used an electric knife? I said, no, never used an electric knife. And they said, well, you know, it works great. Do you have an electric knife? Well, yeah, I got one. It's been up in the top of the pantry for years. Never taken it out of the box. I took the thing out of the box. Actually, I think the first thing I ever cut up was a brisket with it. I just cooked this brisket and wanted to cut it up neatly. And even I pulled that electric knife out. First of all, it was a power tool. This was cool. <laughs> all right. Once I figured out how it operated and got the whole thing together, went to cut. Oh man, it was like cutting butter. I mean, it was it was beautiful. It was beautiful. No more of this sawing and hacking and trying to find a sharp knife and the whole. It was awesome. 
It, that electric knife was available to us for years in our marriage, but it did absolutely no good because it was in the top of the pantry in a box. It had never been pulled out and plugged into a power source. Never been. What I'm going to talk to you about this morning is the beginning of this section of Scripture where God talks to us about the power source. And I believe in my own life I have done this for years. And by God's grace, living a different way now. And, and want to continue to live a different way. Many of you may be in the same place. You may have gifts that have been given to you. Things that are rightfully yours that Jesus has given. And kind of like my electric knife, it's up there in the top of the pantry never taken out of the box, never plugged into a power source, and so it's not effectively working in your life. It could be. Jesus intended it to be, but it's not because it's not plugged in. How many appliances do you have in your kitchen that you use on a, or in your bathroom that you use on a regular basis? They are such a part of your life, but I promise you not a one of them will work if you don't take that cord and plug it into a power source. Not one of them. You say, well, we got wireless, Troy. Or we've got, you know, we've got battery operated now. Well, even that has to eventually be plugged into a power source. The analogy holds. Look with me. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he had a host of captives. He led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. We're going to stop right there. This is a confusing, can be a confusing passage of scripture and a divisive passage of scripture. There are two primary thoughts on this. Um, good Godly theologians, people who study the scripture, disagree. I, there are some people I greatly respect who know way more about God's word than I do, who believe one way on this passage. I don't necessarily completely agree with it. There are others who believe it another way that I do agree with it. But there's, there's some controversy over this. What does it mean when it says he descended and ascended? And where did he go when it says into the earth? Two primary thoughts on this. The first is that Jesus left heaven. He was in heaven, this place of perfection. And he descended to the earth, this place of sin, this place of degradation, this place of brokenness. And he was here on the earth. He lived here. And then ultimately he died here. He went to the, because you have to explain what it, when, it, when it says he goes to the deepest part of the earth. Or he goes um, where it says that he sent into the lower regions. Uh, well, if he came to the earth, where are the low, lower regions that he went into? And I said, well, that's, that's the greatest depravity and humiliation that he suffered on the cross, but it happened here on this earth. He left heaven, he went here. And then after he died on the cross, he ascended back into heaven. So all this is a picture, it's a type of that. And some believe that. And they may be right. Uh, I don't know. I mean, honestly, this is one of those things that's not as clear as you'd like it to be. There is another camp or another thought, and I tend to lean more this way, that Christ, when he died, he not only came to the earth, but when he died, he went to Sheol. He went to the place of the dead. He went to the place, the netherworld, if you will. And there, at his death, he goes to the netherworld, the lower region, Paul says here. 
And again, if that's what it means, I, I'm willing to acknowledge I could be wrong in this. But he went to this nether region, and there in that place, he declared to all, I have overcome death, hell, and the grave. I now hold the keys to, de to death. And I am now taking back all of those who have died believing. Those who were pre-Christ's death on the cross, but who believed, who had faith. I mean, we have a whole list of them in the scripture, of people who had faith, but they died long before Christ died on the cross. They were looking ahead to something we look back at. And so he declares to all, and then he leaves Sheol, this place of death, this netherland, if you will, taking with him those who were held captive, those who were believing in him, but they were still held captive. Some phrase that he came and he captured the captives, and he led them out of that place. Um, there is this picture both here and over in 1 Peter chapter 3 that kind of seems to allude to Christ going to this, this place. How many of you grew up in a culture or in a church culture background where you recited the Apostles' Creed? Anybody? Okay, quite a few of you. There's a line. Now, I did not grow up in a church culture that recited the Apostles' Creed. And um, I've shared this before. And from the household I grew up in, that was considered Catholic. Anything Catholic was anathema. No. We'd even, we even rooted against Notre Dame just because they were Catholic, all right? <laughs> I'm not proud of all that. It's just part of my history, okay? Um, but there's a part of the Apostles' Creed that says that Jesus died and went to hell. And, you know, you grow up bad. Wait a second. Well, Jesus didn't go to hell. What, Jesus has no part to hell. And then there was a part in there that says that I believe in the, in the Holy Catholic Church. Well, you can't say it didn't mean Catholic in the form of a denomination. It meant Catholic as universal, the universal church. Um, but anyway, I didn't understand all that as a kid growing up. But that, that's part of the Apostles' Creed. So there are many who believe this. I, I believe they're right in it. That Jesus literally did go to Sheol. He went to hell as we know it. He went to that place, that netherland. There he preached the gospel, if you will. He declared his authority over all of it, and he left and he took all those captives with him, all those who believed by faith before his crucifixion. All right? It says that he ascended. It says he ascended back above the heavens. Again, this gets theological, and there's a lot of minutia here, and I try to avoid that as much as I can uh, while still giving you the truth. Um, there are different levels of heaven as theologians believe them, and Paul talks about the third heaven, and this belief that the third heaven is somehow higher than our heavens that we see, our atmosphere that we see. And somewhere between our atmosphere and this third heaven, it, it is believed that that is the realm of demonic power, um, the, the demonic angels, if you will, demons. Uh, Satan, all in this realm. It says he's, that Satan's the prince of the power of the air. All right, so again, not a lot of this that we can prove of the certain scripture, give us certain insight into, but this is a belief, all right? One that I think is pretty accurate, but again, we'll know, we'll know completely when Jesus tells us one day, all right? So the picture here then is that Jesus goes to hell, to Sheol. He takes the captives because the scripture says he led the captives captive. He, he led them out. He comes out of this place leading the captives. Those who have believed and who have been held captive, he has now set them free. And he ascends back up 
And it says he goes above the heavens so that he can fill all things. So he penetrates through this area that theologians believe would be the place where demonic power. Basically what he's saying is, I'm demonstrating that I am stronger than every other power in heaven or on earth. I am God. I am Jesus. I am the Son of God. I am the very God. And I have power over all things and I fill all things. That's what he's demonstrating, okay? You say, Troy, is there a reason for all of this? Yes. There's a reason. Thanks for bearing with that. Some of you are glazing over. I can see it already. Okay? There's a reason for all of this. Because whether you believe like I believe or not, whether you have a little different interpretation of this, I don't think it's worth arguing over because here's the point. Here's what's most important. If you only remember one thing this morning, you must remember this. What in the world is all this ascending and descending and going back? What does all that have to do with anything? Here's what it has to do. It is a demonstration for you and me, of our power source. What is our power source? Remember in chapter 3, when we were in Ephesians chapter 3? Paul says, at the end of chapter 3, in verse 20, he says that there is working in you and me as believers a power that's, beyond, that's able to do beyond what we can think or imagine or even ask. He says this all happens according to what the power that is at work within you. You say, what power is that? Well, we say that's the Holy Spirit. That's God, the Holy Spirit living in us. But Paul went even deeper than that. Back up in chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, I want to know something. Remember what he wants to know? He says, I want to know the power of what? Your resurrection. This is resurrection power. This, remember, remember my uh, electric knife? I plugged that into the outlet. You know, 120, whatever that is, all right? That's a power source. The power source he's talking about here is way bigger than that. He says, this power source that you have is resurrection power. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he had the power, has the power, because of his death and resurrection, to eternally save you and seal you for all of eternity? Do you believe that? All right, good. Then why would it be difficult for us to believe that he can eternally transform me while I'm here on this planet? If I can trust him for eternity, why can't I trust him for time? If, if the power that it takes to raise you, and I'm thinking it takes a lot of power to raise somebody from the dead. If the power that raised Jesus from the, and I'm thinking it took more power to raise him than it would just a regular dead person. Why? Because he was carrying the weight, the sins of the world on him. He had to pay for it all. But the power of God, resurrection power raised him to life. He takes those who were held captive and said, hey, you're captive no more. By the way, there's a beautiful picture here. There's two parts of this, or, or two pictures in, in, in ancient times, because you would have these soldiers, these kings, or these generals who would go off to battle, and they would win victories, and as they came back home, there would be this great procession that came into the city. And as they would come in, the general brought all the spoils, everything that they had taken in winning, or the king took all the, the spoils that they got from the conquered enemy, and as they're going along and all these people are lined up, they're throwing out gifts. They're throwing out gifts to the people. Said, here, here are the spoils, all that I've conquered. He's throwing out gifts. There's this picture when it says he came back leading captives and giving gifts to men. 
They're throwing out these gifts. And he's leading, there's two groups that he's leading. One are those who are his enemy, those who are sworn enemy who fight against him. He's leading them in captivity. They are bound as prisoners. They are prisoners of war, and they are being drugged behind. As a matter of fact, when it says in Corinthians that Paul uses this illustration, he says that I am always, he's causing me always to triumph. He's always leading me in his triumphal procession, literally, if you look at the Greek. He's always leading me in his triumphal procession. In other words, those who will not submit to him, they're being drug along as prisoners of war, but they're still being displayed. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3 says, remember that picture? It says he took the handwriting of ordinances that were against us. All of this legal document that says you and I are guilty. And he says he takes it, he grabs it, he nails it to the cross and covers it in his blood. And says, I have paid for that. It is no more. And it says when he did that, he made a show of demonic powers, of Satan and all the enemy. He made a show of them openly, the scripture says. All right? This is that picture of the defeated foe, the prisoners of war being led behind the, in the triumphal procession of our king. Okay? There's that picture. But along with them, Separate from them are those who by faith have believed in the king and they're coming along as recaptured captives who are now being given freedom. They were in bondage. They had been taken as prisoners of war and the king went in and he freed them and said, I want you to come with me. I want you to walk in the freedom and the triumph that I provide. This is the picture that the Apostle Paul has given. He gives it here in Ephesians. He does it over in 1 Corinthians. There are several places where he uses this imagery for you and I to understand what's taking place. Now, here's why it matters. The power that raised Jesus from the grave is the power that not just seals our eternal future, but it is the power that's at work in you and me today so that we can... How does it say it here? So that we may attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to be mature to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So I can be, to say it in another way, so I can be transformed to look like Jesus. So when people encounter you and me, they'll do like they did with the, the disciples. What did they say of the disciples? They said, we could tell these men have been with Jesus. There was something different in the way they talked, in the way they thought, in the way they carried themselves, the way they lived and walked out life. Now, we have enough in Scripture to know that they weren't perfect. They messed up. But there was a supernatural power at work. I love Peter. I love the picture in Peter because here's a guy who, he was full of self-confidence. He's like, Lord, you know, all of these guys, may, they may leave you, they may desert you, they may deny you, but I won't. I'm going to be with you. I'll die with you. Jesus says, Peter, before the, croc, the, the cock crows three times, you'll deny that you even know me. Not me, Lord. Uh-uh. I'll tell you what, Nathaniel over there, he might do that. John, I'm not going to do that. No, not me. And when it happens, Peter goes out and weeps bitterly because he remembers what Jesus told him. But after the resurrection, Jesus comes and he says, tell my disciples to come, and Peter, don't leave Peter out. Peter's gonna think he doesn't qualify anymore. Make sure Peter knows him too. He needs to be here. And it's Peter on the day of Pentecost that stands up and preaches boldly with power. Not his, 
not his strength, not his power. That was demonstrated there the night Jesus was on trial. In the morning that Jesus was on trial, that was Peter's strength. That was his ability. What happened on Pentecost was the power, resurrection power at work in Peter and all the others as well. Now let's make this as practical as I know how. Resurrection power means that you and I don't have to be a servant to our anger anymore. You don't have to be known for your anger. You don't have to be known for your lustful desires. You don't have to be a captive to them. Resurrection power means that I don't have to be the one common denominator in every relational conflict in my life. Did you understand what I meant by that? There's all this conflict and you're looking around, well, it's so-and-so and it's so-and-so, but the one common denominator in all those situations is you. I don't, it, that doesn't have to be true of me or you. It was true of me for a long time in my life. I was the one common denominator and I always thought it was somebody else's problem. It was mine. Resurrection power, I don't have to live life that way. I can be transformed. I can be changed. Resurrection power means I literally can speak truth with love. Most of the time we just speak truth and call it love. I'll tell you, a number of years ago, the Lord was working in me in several areas. And one was what I do here, this, this particular role that I play here in this body. And the Holy Spirit really just spoke to my heart and said, Troy, you have for years concerned yourself with teaching people truth, but you haven't loved the people. And so none of it, no matter how truthful I may think it was, none of it really mattered when it came to this reshaping, this transforming by the power of the resurrection. None of it. Because it was simply truth without love. You can speak truth all day long, but if you don't love the people you're speaking it to, it doesn't have resurrection power. And here's the thing I discovered, because as the Lord began to show me that, I said, all right, Lord, I'll love them. Do you know you're hard to love, all right? Do you know that? And so am I, all right? People are hard to love. Only God can do it. To love the way God loves because we love people based on what we don't know about them not what we do we love people based on what they give us not what we can give them we tend to love people for selfish reasons and call it love God says I love you when you offer me nothing in return I can't love that way but I say I can't love that way, but resurrection power in me causes me to love that way. This resurrection power is, well, it's way more phenomenal than me plugging in that electric knife and cutting brisket. I mean, as good as that was, I mean, that was, that was splendid, all right? But this is way beyond that. This means that This means I can love my wife 
unconditionally as Jesus loves you and me as his church. I don't have to change her. I don't have to make sure she does the dishes every time one gets dirty or make the bed just the way I want it or fix this just the way I want it to be or to organize the checkbook this way, which by the way, I have tried to do all those things to her in our married life to fix her. And then one day the Lord said, Troy, instead of trying to fix her, why don't you just love her? I said, Lord, I do love her. He says, right now you're loving her based on how she performs for you. That's not my kind of love. And by the way, she's not messy. I'm just anal, okay? All right? I got, a, I got an issue. More than one, all right? And you'll begin to, all right, Lord, how do I do, I don't know how to do this. He said, I'll help you. If you'll surrender, matter of fact, if you'll do more than that, Troy, if you'll die, I'll give you resurrection life. I'll give you resurrection power if you'll die. But Lord, I want dead people don't have wants, Troy. But Lord, I think dead people don't think, Troy. But Lord, dead people don't say but, Troy. You, we laugh, okay? But this was, this was gut-wrenching. This is, these are the hardest things you'll ever do in your life is to actually surrender and allow resurrection power to be at work in you and me and transforming us to lay down our here's the trick we're, we're dying and yet living we're not quitting we're not, it's not resignation I throw up my hands I can't do anything with you that's resignation it's not love We've done that. I've done it. Done it times with my children. I'm done. I can't do it. And the Holy Spirit comes and says, that's not, that's not resurrection power. That's Troy's power. Can you imagine? I mean, think about the impact of this in your family, okay? Resurrection power at work in you and your family. It, well, it begins to transform families. Then imagine a family of God in a local body operating in resurrection power. And you begin to see the fullness of Christ, the full measure of Christ, and this growing up into him as the head. What Paul was talking about here. You know why the North American church is struggling so much with our purpose and why we're here, what we're supposed to be doing? It's because we've forgotten the simple truth that we are here to be a demonstration of God's presence and his power, just like it will be in heaven. His kingdom here on this earth in his church. Hallelujah. That's what it's supposed to look like. It does not happen with better programs. It doesn't happen with more ingenuity. It doesn't happen with more learning, more training. I'm not against learning or training or any of those things. Those are secondary or further down the list. God says, I have a different way I want to do this. I want to do this with my power, my resurrection power. If you'll surrender, if you'll die, to your own way, doing it your own way. 
you'll experience my life. I love being married. I've always loved my wife. It was good even in the early days, but it's really, really special now. Not because she got better, but because I died. And so I ask you this morning, church, will you die? Will you die? Power is available, but we'll never see his as long as we're operating in ours. I'm going to ask Lori to come play. And as she comes, um, I want you to do something with me. In World War One, there was a kind of a customer tradition, especially among the French soldiers and French army. Many of these little towns and villages had their own kind of private army. You were from a town, so you protected that town. So you became kind of the army of that town, that little village. And they would go off to war, and they might be part of a bigger army, but they still identified as being from this little town or this village. We're the army of this place. And they would come back from battle and of course towns and villages in that day in particular you often had walls around them they had protection to keep invading armies out and so as the army would come back as the soldiers would come back the people would gather along the walls and the gates and along the way Soldiers coming back, many of them bleeding, wounded, limping, some being carried. They, they look like they've been in war. As they would get to the gate, they would have, they would, the, the citizens would call out and say, why should we open up and allow you to come in? And the soldiers would point out their wounds and the blood and they would say we have fought we have fought the battle and we have won our wounds our wounds are the they're the path they allow us entrance Jesus goes, in my opinion, he goes to Sheol and he takes those captives and it says he comes back and he ascends above the heavens. And I just wonder, I don't know, but I just wonder if as he approaches that city, that place, and the angels cry out and say, why should we allow you in? And he holds up his hands. He says, I have fought the battle and I won. My wound, my hands, my feet, my side, 
I wear the wounds of a battle fought and won. I wonder sometimes if this is what the psalmist meant when it says, when they're crying out and he says, open up ye ancient doors. And they say, who is this? Who is it we should open up to? Well, the King of Glory. It's the King of Glory. He's coming. How do we know he's the King of Glory? By the wounds. By the price that was paid. And not just that he died, everybody dies. He rose. He lives. He ascended. We know that. Intellectually, we know that. We, we clap that. We pray that. We sing about that. But that same resurrection power is yours and mine if we are in him. It's not just his. It's applied to us. Folks, we can live differently. We can be transformed. You say, Troy, I have tried. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe we've tried so hard to figure out how to do this in our own strength that we've never surrendered and just said, Lord, I die to doing it my way. I need to be empowered by you. I need to be plugged into you, your power source at work in me. Lord, would you help us today? Jesus, it's you. Only you. We sang it earlier. I lift my hands. I sing my song. All of my days, all my rights, all my wrongs, I offer my life here and beyond. Lord, to you to do in me what I cannot do. And Lord, when we stumble or mess up, and we do, we come back to the same place. Lord, here I am. I offer myself again. I die to me and receive life from you. church where are you this morning are you willing to die nobody can do it for you your mom and dad can't do it for you your children can't do it for you your relatives your friends nobody can do it for you just between you and the Lord you say I believed in Jesus he's my savior great but are you willing to die that you might live in every area of your life experience his resurrection power to give up lay down your rights your way of doing it your your wisdom are you willing just to sit at his feet like Mary just to learn just to listen to hear, receive. 
If so, tell him. Right where you are this morning, say, Lord, this is, this is my surrender to you. My life, it's really an exchange. My life for yours, Lord. My power for your power. My wisdom for your wisdom. My strength for yours. It's an exchange. It's the great exchange. Lord, help us today as your people. Give us revelation of what we have not seen. To hear what we have not heard. To understand the futility of trying to live life our own way. And a willingness, Lord, to surrender. Just to die to you. To be led captive in your triumphal procession. Because, Lord, that's freedom. That's victory. That's power. That's joy and fulfillment like we've never known. I say with Paul today, and I think many here would agree, I want to know you in the power of your resurrection. I want to know you that way, Jesus. I don't want to just know about you. I don't want to know the story of how you died and rose again. I want to know you in the power of your resurrection. Lord, help us in this place be a demonstration of your presence and your power, your kingdom on this earth. It is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray.